0: Hello, and welcome to Family Folktales from the Nashville Public Library. I'm Susan Poulter, a librarian at the Main Library. Today's story is The Satin Surgeon, a French story found in Andrew Lang's Olive Fairy Book. Once upon a time, there was a very rich and powerful king who, in spite of having been married several times, had only two daughters. The elder was extremely plain, she squinted and was hunchbacked, but at the same time she was clever and amusing, so though at heart both spiteful and untruthful, she was her father's favorite. The younger princess, on the other hand, was both lovely and sweet-tempered, and those who knew her well could hardly say whether her charming face or pleasant manners were the more attractive. The neighboring country was governed by a young emperor who, though not much over twenty years of age, had shown great courage in battle, and had he wished it, might very likely have conquered the whole world. Luckily, he preferred peace to war, and occupied his time with trying to rule his own kingdom well and wisely. His people were very anxious that he should marry and as the two princesses were the only ladies to be heard of who were of suitable age and rank, the emperor sent envoys to their father's court to ask for the hand of one of them in marriage. But as he was resolved only to marry a woman whom he could love and be happy with, he determined to see the lady himself before making up his mind. For this purpose he set out in disguise not long after the departure of his ambassadors, and arrived at the palace very soon after they did. But as he had foolishly kept his plan secret, he found when he reached the court that they had already made proposals for the elder princess. Now the emperor might just as well have gone openly, for his presence soon became known, and when the king heard of it, he prepared to receive him royally, though of course he had to pretend that he had no idea who he was. So it was settled that the ambassadors should present their master under the name of one of the princes, and in this manner he was received by the king. At night there was a grand ball at which the young emperor was able to see the two princesses and to make their acquaintance. The ugly face and figure and spiteful remarks of the elder displeased him so greatly that he felt he could not marry her even if she owned ten kingdoms, whilst the sweet face and gentle manners of the younger sister charmed him so much that he would gladly have shared his throne with her had she been only a simple shepherdess.' He found it very difficult to conceal his thoughts and to pay the elder princess the amount of attention due to her, though he did his best to be polite, while all he saw or heard during the next few days only increased his love for her younger sister, and at last he confessed that his dearest wish was to make her his wife if she and her father would grant his desire." he had commanded his ambassadors to put off their farewell audience for a little time, hoping that the king might perceive the state of his feelings. But when it could be deferred no longer, he bade them propose in his name for the younger princess. On hearing this news, so different from what he had been led to expect, the king, who, as we have said before, was devoted to his elder daughter and entirely under her influence, could hardly contain his displeasure. Directly the audience was over, he sent for the princess and told her of the insolent proposal the emperor had made for her sister. The princess was even more furious than her father, and after consulting together, they decided to send the younger daughter to some distant place out of reach of the young emperor. But where this should be, they did not quite know. However, at length, After they had both racked their brains to find a suitable prison, they fixed on a lonely castle called the Desert Tower, where they thought she would be quite safe. Meanwhile, it was thought best to let the court gaieties go on as usual, and orders were given for all sorts of splendid entertainments. And on the day that was fixed for carrying off the princess, the whole court was invited to a great hunt in the forest. The emperor and the young princess were counting the hours till this morning, which promised to be so delightful. The king and his guest arrived together at the meeting-place, but what was the surprise and distress of the young man at not seeing the object of his love amongst the ladies present? He waited anxiously, looking up and down, not hearing anything that the king said to him, and when the hunt began and she still was absent, he declined to follow— and spent the whole day seeking her, but in vain. On his return, one of his attendants told him that some hours before he had met the princess's carriage, escorted by a troop of soldiers who were riding on each side so that no one could get speech of her. He had followed them at a distance and saw them stop at the desert tower, and on its return he noticed that the carriage was empty. The emperor was deeply grieved by this news. He left the court at once and ordered his ambassadors to declare war the very next day unless the king promised to set free the princess. And more than this, no sooner had he reached his own country than he raised a large army with which he seized the frontier towns before his enemy had had time to collect any troops. But ere he quitted the court he took care to write a letter to his beloved princess, imploring her to have patience and trust to him. And this he gave into the hands of his favorite equerry, who would, he knew, lay down his life in his service. With many precautions, the equerry managed to examine the surroundings of the tower, and at last discovered not only where the princess lodged, but that a little window in her room looked out on a desolate plot full of brambles. Now the unhappy princess was much annoyed that she was not even allowed to take the air at this little window, which was the only one in her room. Her keeper was her elder sister's former nurse, a woman whose eyes never slept. Not for an instant could she be induced to stir from the side of the princess, and she watched her slightest movement. One day, however, the spy was for once busy in her room, writing an account of the princess to her elder sister, and the poor prisoner seized the opportunity to lean out of the window. As she looked about her, she noticed a man hidden among the bushes, who stepped forward as soon as he caught sight of her, and showed her a letter which he took from his jerkin. She at once recognized him as one of the emperor's attendants. And let down a long string to which he tied the letter. You can fancy how quickly she drew it up again, and luckily she had just time to read it before her jailer had finished her report and entered the room. The princess's delight was great, and next day she managed to write an answer on a sheet of her notebook and to throw it down to the equerry, who hastened to carry it back to his master. The emperor was so happy at having news of his dear princess that he resolved at all risks to visit the desert tower himself, if only to see her for a moment. He ordered his equerry to ask leave to visit her, and the princess replied that she should indeed rejoice to see him, but that she feared that her jailer's watchfulness would make his journey useless unless he came during the short time when the old woman was writing alone in her own room. Naturally, the bare idea of difficulties only made the emperor more eager than ever. He was ready to run any risks, but by the advice of the equerry, he decided to try cunning rather than force. In his next letter, he enclosed a sleeping powder, which the princess managed to mix with her jailer's supper so that when the emperor reached the tower in the evening, the princess appeared fearlessly at her window on hearing his signal. They had a long and delightful conversation, and parted in the fond hope that their meeting had not been observed. But in this they were sadly mistaken. The watchful eyes of the old nurse were proof against any sleeping draught. She had seen and heard all, and lost no time in writing to report everything to her mistress. The news made the spiteful little hunchback furious, and she resolved to be cruelly revenged for the contempt with which the emperor had treated her. She ordered her nurse to pretend not to notice what might be passing, and meantime she had a trap made, so that if the emperor pushed his way through the brambles at the foot of the tower— It would not only catch him as if he were a mouse, but would let loose a number of poisoned arrows, which would pierce him all over. When it was ready, the trap was hidden amongst the brambles without being observed by the princess. That same evening, the emperor hurried to the tower with all the impatience of love. As he came near, he heard the princess break into a long, joyous peal of laughter. He advanced quickly to give the usual signal, when suddenly his foot trod on something he knew not what. A sharp, stinging pain ran through him, and he turned white and faint, but luckily the trap had only opened a little way, and only a few of the arrows flew out. For a moment he staggered, and then fell to the ground covered with blood. Had he been alone, he would have died very shortly. But his faithful squire was close at hand, and carried his master off to the wood, where the rest of his escort were waiting for him. His wounds were bound up, and some poles were cut to make a rough litter, and, almost unconscious, the emperor was borne away out of his enemy's country to his own palace. All this time the princess was feeling very anxious. She had been whiling away the hours before this meeting by playing with a little pet monkey, which had been making such funny faces that in spite of her troubles she had burst into the hearty laugh overheard by the emperor. But by and by she grew restless, waiting for the signal which never came, and had she dared, would certainly have rebelled when her jailer, whom she believed to be fast asleep, ordered her to go to bed at once. A fortnight passed, which was spent in great anxiety by the poor girl, who grew thin and weak with the uncertainty. At the end of this period, when the nurse went to her room one morning as usual in order to write her daily report, she carelessly left the key in the door. This was perceived by the princess, who turned it upon her so quickly and quietly that she never found out she was locked in till she had finished writing and got up to seek her charge. Finding herself free, the princess flew to the window, and to her horror, saw the arrows lying about amongst the blood-stained brambles. Distracted with terror, she slipped down the stairs and out of the tower, and ran for some time along a path, when, with great good luck, she met the husband of her own nurse, who had only just heard of her imprisonment, and was on his way to try to find out whether he could serve her. The princess begged him to get her some men's clothes while she awaited him in a little wood close by. The good man was overjoyed to be of use, and started at once for the nearest town, where he soon discovered a shop where the court lackeys were accustomed to sell their master's cast-off clothes. The princess dressed herself at once in the disguise he had brought. Which was of rich material and covered with precious stones, and putting her own garments into a bag, which her servant hung over his shoulders, they both set out on their journey. This lasted longer than either of them expected. They walked by day as far as the princess could manage, and by night they slept in the open air. One evening they camped in a lovely valley, watered by a rippling stream and towards morning the princess was awakened by a charming voice singing one of the songs of her own childhood. Anxious to find out where the sound came from, she walked to a thicket of myrtles, where she saw a little boy with a quiver at his back and an ivory bow in his hand, singing softly to himself as he smoothed the feathers of his shafts. "'Are you surprised at seeing my eyes open?' he asked with a smile." Ah, I am not always blind, and sometimes it is well to know what sort of a heart needs piercing. It was I who sent out my darts the day that you and the Emperor met, so as I have caused the wound, I am duty-bound to find the cure. Then he gave her a little bottle full of a wonderful salve with which to dress the Emperor's wounds when she found him. In two days you can reach his palace, he said. Do not waste time, for sometimes time is life. The princess thanked the boy with tears in her eyes and hastened to awake her guide so that they might start and set off at once on their way. As the boy had foretold, in two days the tower and walls of the city came in sight, and her heart beat wildly at the thought, that she would soon be face to face with the emperor, but on inquiring after his health she learned, to her horror, that he was sinking fast. For a moment her grief was so great that she nearly betrayed herself. Then, calling all her courage to her aid, she announced that she was a doctor and that if they would leave him in her charge for a few days, she would promise to cure him. Now, in order to make a good appearance at court, the new doctor resolved to have an entire suit made of pale blue satin. She bought the richest, most splendid stuff to be had in the shops and summoned a tailor to make it for her, engaging to pay him double if he would finish the work in two hours. Next, she went to the market where she bought a fine mule, bidding her servant see that its harness was adorned with trappings of blue satin also. Whilst all was being made ready, the princess asked the woman in whose house she lived whether she knew any of the emperor's attendants, and found to her satisfaction that her cousin was his majesty's chief valet. The doctor then bade the woman inform everyone she met that on hearing of the emperor's illness a celebrated surgeon had hastened to attend him and had undertaken to cure him entirely, declaring himself prepared to be burnt alive in case of failure. The good woman, who loved nothing better than a bit of gossip, hurried to the palace with her news. Her story did not lose in telling. The court physicians were very scornful about the newcomer, but the emperor's attendants remarked that as, in spite of their remedies, His Majesty was dying before their eyes, there could be no harm in consulting this stranger. So the Lord Chamberlain begged the young doctor to come and prescribe for the royal patient without delay, and the doctor sent a message at once that he would do himself the honor to present himself at the palace, and he lost no time in mounting his mule and setting out. As the people and soldiers saw him ride past, they cried out, "'Here comes the satin surgeon! Look at the satin surgeon! Long live the satin surgeon!' And on arriving, he was announced by this name, and at once taken to the sick room of the dying man. The emperor was lying with his eyes closed and his face as white as the pillow itself, but directly he heard the newcomer's voice, he looked up and smiled, and signed that he wished the new doctor to remain near him. Making a low bow, the satin surgeon assured the emperor that he felt certain of curing his malady, but insisted that everyone should leave the room except the emperor's favorite equerry. He then dressed the wounds with the magic salve which the boy had given him, and it so relieved the emperor's pain that he slept soundly all that night. When morning broke, the courtiers and doctors hurried to the emperor's chamber and were much surprised to find him free of pain. But they were promptly ordered out of the room by the satin surgeon, who renewed the dressings with such good results that next morning the emperor was nearly well and able to leave his bed. As he grew stronger, his thoughts dwelt more and more on the cause of all his sufferings, and his spirits grew worse as his health grew better. The face and voice of his new doctor reminded him of the princess, who had, he imagined, betrayed him, and caused him such dreadful torture, and, unable to bear the thought, his eyes filled with tears. The doctor noticed his sad countenance and did all he could to enliven his patient with cheerful talk and amusing stories, till at last he won the emperor's confidence and heard all the story of his love for a lady who had treated him cruelly, but whom, in spite of everything, he could not help loving. The satin surgeon listened with sympathy and tried to persuade the emperor that possibly the princess was not so much to blame as might appear but eager though the sick man was to believe this, it took a long while to persuade him of it. At length a day came when the emperor was nearly well, and for the last time the doctor dressed the wounds with the precious salve. Then both patient and surgeon, being wearied out with something they could not explain, fell asleep and slept for hours. Early next morning, The princess, having decided to resume her own clothes, which she had brought with her in a bag, dressed herself with great care and put on all her jewels so as to make herself look as lovely as possible. She had just finished when the emperor awoke, feeling so strong and well that he thought he must be dreaming. Nor could he believe himself to be awake when he saw the princess draw aside his curtains. For some minutes they gazed at each other, unable to speak, and then they only uttered little gasps of joy and thankfulness. By and by, the princess told him the whole story of her adventures since their last interview at the desert tower, and the emperor, weak as he was, threw himself at her feet with vows of love and gratitude, without ever giving a thought to the fact that the household and court physicians were awaiting their summons in the ante-room. The emperor, anxious to prove how much he owed to the satin surgeon, opened his door himself, and great was everyone's surprise and joy at seeing him in such perfect health. Like good courtiers, they hastened in to praise and compliment the satin surgeon. But what was their astonishment on finding that he had disappeared, leaving in his place the loveliest princess in the whole world. Whilst thanking the surgeon for his miraculous cure, you might at the same time do homage to your empress, observed the emperor. He wished to have the marriage celebrated the same day, but the princess declared that she must wait to get her father's permission first. Messengers were therefore instantly dispatched to the neighboring capital, and soon returned with the king's consent for he had lately discovered all the mischief caused by his elder daughter. The spiteful princess was so furious at the failure of her plans that she took to her bed and died in a fit of rage and jealousy. No one grieved for her, and the king, being tired of the fatigues of government, gave up his crown to his younger daughter. So the two kingdoms henceforth became one. That was The Satin Surgeon from Andrew Lang's Olive Fairy Book. Special thanks to Ginger Sands for our theme music. You can find more of Ginger's music at iTunes or on her website at www.gingersands.com. And if you'd like to comment on today's story, send me an email. I can be reached at susan.polter. that's P-O-U-L-T-E-R, at nashville.gov. Thanks for listening.